Us. We were in Daniel 1. We had uh, Pastor Anthony down here. We were in Daniel 1. We've been in uh, Jude. We've been in Luke 12. And tonight we're going to be in 1 Corinthians, the first couple chapters, and we'll see how far we make it. I already feel like I've bitten off more than I can chew. Uh, but we'll, Lord willing, Pastor Jim will be back Sunday. Uh, obviously, we've been in a pause from our study in 2 Corinthians and in Acts on Wednesday night. Um, and we will eventually be resuming those soon, I hope, Lord willing. But wait, there's more, because Easter is coming up, the resurrection. And so a week from this Saturday, uh, we're already going to start the Passion Week stuff. It doesn't seem like it should be there yet, but uh, we'll do the Alabaster Worship Night, Lord willing. And then we'll do the Seder on the following Wednesday, leading into uh, the climax of our faith and the climax of the week, which is celebrating the resurrection. So keep that in mind. So it may be a little bit before we're back in the full swing of the routine, but uh, lots to look forward to. The good news is I believe I should be the last pinch hitter for the Israel trip. So we'll have the regular rotation back uh, coming up soon. And it always sounds good to teach when it's you know like six or eight weeks out. It's like, oh yeah, that's exciting. I've got so much. You know, they always say that People that don't know much always tell you everything they know, and so it's like, oh yeah, I got a chance to say everything that I know. And then as it gets closer to the Wednesday, it's, it's more of this, what was I thinking feeling kind of moment. And I, can, I, and I know that some of y'all walked in here tonight and said, yeah, we sort of got that same feeling when we saw, saw you standing up there. What were we thinking? Um, but the good news is we're going to be considering the Word of God, which is the very words of life that we need, and... God is faithful, and He will bless His Word, and it won't return void. So, we will turn our focus to those things. I'm going to pray quickly one more time, and then we'll dive into the Word. God, again, thank You. Um, Lord, You are faithful, and that is our hope, and that is our trust. And even tonight, Lord, as we open Your Word, uh, may You still our hearts and our minds. Um, and may we uh, just lay aside every, every weight, every burden, everything that worry that might be weighing on us. And may we hear what you have to say to us. I pray you would uh, just fill us with your spirit and speak to us through your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I said, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, we'll start at the beginning. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. You may already have. If you don't have, of course, there's church Bibles around, or you can pull it up on an app. Um, and so, 1 Corinthians 1 through 2, and again, I'm not sure how much we're going to make it through chapter 2, but there's definitely some points we want to cover. And what I've, I've called this is the foolishness of God wiser than men. And for those of you who are familiar with your Bibles and 1 Corinthians, a lot of these passages are going to be familiar. We've talked about them recently. Um, that concept is probably going to be familiar. And, and a lot of this is foundational and fundamental, um, but I think it's good. And, and hopefully uh, it will renew in us the passion for the cross of Christ as we head into Easter and that celebration. How did we get here? Believe it or not, if you read through uh, the bookmarks with the church reading, we were here in November, which seems like forever ago, but was just a few months ago, four months ago, um, that we, we read through this. And I think it was still sort of stuck in my mind, just some various things that I was thinking about in 1 Corinthians. And then we started, of course, 2 Corinthians 
on, uh, on Sunday mornings, which is really a standalone book, as Pastor Jim walked through. Um, very similar. Obviously, they're both to the Corinthians. There's first and second. You didn't need uh, a genius to tell you that. Um, and they're related. They're dealing with related things and similar things, but they are separate. Uh, the other thing that really sort of confirmed to me that this is where we would be is when we've been going through Acts on Wednesday nights, uh, Acts chapter 2, uh, recently, we actually covered some of these verses uh, in, in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, and we, we emphasized the place of biblical preaching and Christ-centered preaching and reasonable preaching and convicting preaching, and that's, that's really the core of what is here in 1 Corinthians. Uh, we also looked at the, the character of the church as being a gospel-testifying and a gospel-proclaiming church when we got the first report card in the book of Acts. And um, so, again, that's central here tonight. Because we've been in 2 Corinthians and Pastor Jim, so we started that, again, just a couple of months ago. It seems like a long time ago. Uh, but he did walk through some of the background on Corinth, and he explained the chronology. There was actually three letters, and he, and he talked about the founding of the church. So I'm not going to reiterate that here tonight. Uh, it, if you are interested in that or you missed it, Again, go back on YouTube or, or wherever, and, and again, I think it was like January 8th, plus or minus. He walked through all that background, how Paul in Acts 18 talks about how Paul went to Corinth and planted the church, um, and he went through all the chronology, so I won't um, touch on that. But uh, again, there's common threads, but they, they, they really do stand alone. The one thing I will say on the background um, and it's probably not news to you, but Corinth was, in my mind, very much like our nation, like the United States. Uh, this is what David Guzik had to say about Corinth, again, just for context. He said, Corinth was one of the great cities of the ancient world and a community very much like Southern California, which is where he is or has been. And a community very much like Southern California, it was prosperous, busy, and growing. It had a deserved reputation for the reckless pursuit of pleasure. Corinth had a rich ethnic mix, and it was a center for sports, government, military, and business. Again, sounds very much like the world we live in. And citing other commentators, Guzik summarizes, he says, Paul's Corinth was at once the New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world. It was intellectually alert materially prosperous, but morally corrupt. And what I like about, again, I think that makes that eminently applicable for us, not only as the church, but living in the culture that we do, but you know, for, for the world we live in at large. But what I like about it is Paul sets out, as he's addressing all these errors that he's going to go through, and we're only going to touch on one in this section of Scripture, uh, but he gets back to the plain simplicity of the gospel. Um, so much so that at one point he's going to say, I determined to know nothing else among you except the cross, except Christ and him crucified. Um, and so in this day and age when there's all sorts of church growth plans and wisdom of man or whatever, I think it's very telling that Paul comes back and drives home um, that it's the gospel. It's, it's the cross that is central, and we will spend quite a bit of time there. Um, it's a picture of doing the fundamentals well, and the fundamentals, of course, is the gospel. We never, we never outgrow the gospel, and Paul hammers that home here. 
Having said that, Christ crucified is probably fairly familiar for us. Um, we're going we're gonna to celebrate it, um, and because of that, you know, I think we can kind of tune, tune down or you know, kind of tune out maybe uh, and think, yeah, I've kinda, I kind of know that. Um, I've taught on other obscure passages before, and those are always interesting, uh, but I think the challenge sometimes in coming to something familiar is to, to go, let's, let's approach it um, anew and afresh, and I hope God will do that for us tonight. Uh, but sometimes some of the most profound things are the things that are the most familiar, that are hiding in plain sight. And, and again, it, it struck me again going through these, just how much that's the case. Because um, again, it is a weird season in America. You know, we see the decline and compromise in the church. A lot of churches haven't recovered uh, since COVID. Um, the, the younger generations are not coming back. And so I think a lot of times the church has turned to different uh, resources and, and wisdom um, to, to try to fix that problem. They've enlisted those things to fix, this, fix that problem. And yet Paul is dealing with very similar problems in a very similar culture, uh, a culture that's depraved and it's, it's a wealthy, sort of the crossroads, world-renowned, a church that's carnal and quarrelsome. Uh, and yet Paul sort of comes in the midst of that with this huge banner to start that just says, the gospel of Christ, it's the cross. Um, and, and I think that's a, a, a call for us uh, in, indre- in addressing this world. Not to say that everybody's going to repent. So, you know, we pray for revival. We, we hear about all these things happening. We pray for revival, uh, and only God can do that. Uh, but, but the means by which he will do that is the message of the cross, and Paul reminds us of that. So here's a brief outline, if that's at all legible. Um, again, we may not get as much into the, the chapter 2, but... The first nine verses, is Paul's, Paul addresses it, he gives his personal greeting, he gives his thanksgiving, and then he addresses the particular problem. There are a number of problems that he's going to address in 1 Corinthians, and he, he addresses each one um, now concerning or with regard to, uh, so he goes through sort of methodically, it's a, it's a pretty good outline. The only one that we're going to touch on here is the problem of divisions and his appeal to unity. And then he get, again, he gives a solution, the gospel and the cross of Christ, and then really expounds on that as the foundation, uh, the work of the Spirit and the gospel, what that, what that means. Um, so again, Lord willing, we'll spend some time there. But let's go ahead and start working through it. I'm going to just sort of read chunks, and then we'll comment on them and, uh, and keep working through. So if you have your Bibles, let's start in verse 1 of chapter 1. It says, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, again, it's probably familiar to most of you all, but this is... um, it's, it's a letter, right? It's a letter to the Corinthian church, and it's addressed as a letter. It doesn't look like a letter because it's in our book, uh, and, and Pastor Jim's covered this before, but the way letters were addressed would start out by saying who it's from, which is not that uncommon from what we would do. And again, this is going to be completely illegible to you guys probably. Um, but this is kind of a form business letter, personal business letter. And so in the top, at the outset, you say, here's who it's from, insurance company. It might even have a name. 
the address, your contact information, your date, who it's to, and then you have your sort of greeting, Dear Stan here, it was great to meet you, I wanted to send you this letter and so forth, and then signed by this person and their, uh, their credentials and whatnot. So Paul does something similar. If you were to lay it out in, in letter form, it might look something like this. Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. So he's not here on behalf of an insurance company. He's here on behalf of God. He's called of God as an apostle. He says, here's who this is from. It's God's will. And then he says, and Sosthenes, our brother. Um, in Acts 19 and 20, again, 18 is where Paul comes and, and founds Corinth, sort of the account of that. In 19 and 20, there's discussion of Sosthenes, who was a leader of a synagogue, who was saved, and he was beaten by the Romans. Um, this may be the same Sosthenes. We don't know for sure, but it would make sense. Uh, and Paul's sort of saying, hey, you know, sort of some camaraderie, like, hey, we're in this together, the brotherhood, so to speak. But also, as, as you may or may not be aware, Paul had eyesight problems, and so he would often dictate his letters, which, again, is, is common in, even now. Uh, but normally, if, if somebody is transcribing or taking down the dictation, now you usually put the initials down at the bottom of the letter. That's who typed it up. Paul's saying it at the outset, probably. He's saying, Sosthenes is taking this down in all likelihood. He doesn't have the date, but that's approximately when this letter was written. It was written uh, while Paul was in Ephesians, uh, in Ephesus, not in Ephesians. He was in Ephesus um, in AD 55. And again, we can look at Acts and, and gives the account of when he is there. And then significantly when he addresses it, especially when you consider where he is going and what he's going to be talking about, he just, again, plants a flag and says, this is to the church of God, which is at Corinth. I mean, it could have been tempting to say to you rabble-rousers, to you no-good so-and-sos, whatever, because he's going to have to deal with all this. But he talks about what's true fundamentally first, and they're the church of God, which is at Corinth. They're in the world, but not of the world. And he, and he reminds them of them, them of that from the outset. And then I like this, too, because they do have some problems. They've got some errors that he's going to correct. And he says, to those who have been sanctified... In Christ Jesus. And even in this, it's saints by calling. Um, even in this, it's sort of the, the picture of the, the work of sanctification, right? Um, you were sanctified, you have been sanctified, you're being sanctified, and you will be sanctified. Or said another way, you were justified, it's complete. You're being sanctified because right now we still struggle and you will be glorified. But it's, it's done because it's God's work. Uh, so even, even though you're going to have problems, guess what? God's work is complete. Um, you are saints by calling, not by your works, not by your choosing. God saved you. And then he says, with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, just this unity which he's even going to appeal to. And instead of saying, dear so-and-so, he says, grace to you and peace, his common greeting, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I would be great if I got some letters that were dressed like that uh, instead of just dear uh, Mr. McKelvey or whatever. I thank my God always concerning you, which heads into verse 4. Um, so that's the intro. Again, easy to gloss over, but very significant. Uh, and and uh, 
really sets the tenor for this, I think. It sets the hope for what's to come. Because without that, uh, might not feel like much hope in addressing these things. Um, let's see. All right, let's go ahead and pick up in verse 4. We'll read through that, and then we'll keep going. So again, he says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Jesus Christ, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord." So he gives thanks, and he really expands on what he just talked about um, to say it's, it's God's work in you. Um, it, it is God who is at work. It's the grace of God who is at work. And here's the evidence that I know God's at work. He sees the fruit. He sees their affections. You're eagerly waiting for the Lord. Um, you're not lacking in any gifts. He sees the gifts being there, even in spite of the errors. Um, so again, there's sort of a reassurance um, and and yet the reassurance is in God's faithfulness, right? Verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, harkens, back, harkens to you know, Philippians where it says, He who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And so Paul is, uh, again, thankful. I mean, genuinely thankful for what he sees as fruit in them, uh, but also reassuring them that God is at work. So to summarize that, it's like God has given, God has called, God is faithful, and our fellowship is in Christ. Again, a reminder, don't look to yourself, uh, don't look uh, inside of yourself. It's God's work, and yet we know uh, because it is that it'll happen. So now we address the first issue that he's going to address in this section. I'm picking it up again in verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you agree and there be no divisions among you, but you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, and that no man should say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. Okay. So here's the, here's the problem, disunity. Let me, let me touch an aside before I, I touch back to the main point of it. Verse 17, um, for any of you who have grown up in a tradition that says you have to have certain sacraments to be saved, um, for example, baptism, that you're not saved unless you're baptized, well, this is a pretty clear rebuke of that by the Apostle Paul he would probably not be boasting that he hadn't baptized anybody if that were the means of salvation. Instead, he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech that the cross of Christ 
should not be made void. So in other words, the power of salvation is in the cross and in the gospel, not in, in baptism. And of course, his point there is, um, you, you know, again, I, w- I wasn't even involved in that, so why are you all uh, dividing along these lines? You, you had these little cliques, um, and, and, and we'll touch on that a little bit more, but I wanted to make that point at the outset. When you see that word in verse 10 that says, be made complete and in the same mind and in the same judgment, that's also very significant. Um, your version, if you got the New King James, uh, it says perfectly joined, I think. Um, and, and it's the idea of like a broken bone that's being fused back together or knitted back together, that you're going to have this, the bone is going to be made complete, the bone is going to be perfectly joined. It's going to be set right. It's going to be healed. Um, again, knitted back together, fused, if you will. And the only way that's possible, of course, the only way to have this unity that he's talking about among the believers is, in that same verse 10, to be of the same mind and in the same judgment. Again, significant. Uh, I, I had taught about... Uh, where Jesus calls us to, to use sound judgment, to judge rightly, to judge righteously. Um, you know, we hear about don't judge, we don't want to judge, you're judging me, man. I sort of covered that, that was back in John 7. Um, and yet there is a judgment that we're supposed to have. We're supposed to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And with our mind means we've got to draw conclusions about things, what's true, what's false. We have to make right judgments. And of course, the source of all of that is the Word of God. Um, and, and you will see now, I've, I've heard, uh, again, a number of, of pastors and so forth um, that, will, that will call for unity, and, and it's more of, it's not unity, it's not biblical unity, it's more of an ecumenicalism or a pluralism, which is sort of a, a relativism, and again, the picture of the bone again, you're not going to fuse that bone perfectly with something unless it's of the same mind, of the same material, of um, the same uh, judgment, if you will. Uh, you, it, it could fuse to something else, but it's not going to be that perfect joinder. And so, again, we unify, and what we unify in, as Paul's going to explain more, is the cross of Christ and the message of the gospel and the word of God. And um, so, put another way, Paul says, in, um, as the extreme example, 2 Corinthians 6.14, so the next Corinthians, he says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? So certainly if they're unbelievers, Paul's saying we're not bound together. It's that same kind of concept. We're not going to be joined. We're not going to be unequally yoked or yoked together because we, don't, we, don't, we, we have completely different worldviews. We're completely different characters we're light and dark. We're righteousness and lawlessness. Um, and yet again, there's, there's a movement afoot that, well, you know, we just need to, to welcome everybody. That was one of the, the issues in 1 Corinthians that, he, that Paul deals with later is they had somebody in there who was living a lifestyle of sin. And the Corinthian church was like, hey, look at us. Aren't we great? We're so gracious. And Paul says, no, for his sake and for your sake, um, he needs to be corrected. He needs to be uh, cast out, and then they had the problem. They didn't accept him back in. Um, but the point is, to have unity, um, there must be unity uh, in the gospel, in thought. Um, 
And again, that's especially relevant, I think, in our culture uh, where, where we're struggling. The church is struggling. Like, what do we do? I mean, the, the world, the thinking of the world is whacked out. I mean, it's, uh, it's so unbiblical in many ways. And, and yet, we do want to welcome people in to say, hey, we've got hope. You know, come, you're, you're welcome. I mean, you're welcome to come and hear the message because here's the words of eternal life. Uh, and yet, without joining with that and sort of making it a part of of who we are, because um, because with the mixture, uh, it just becomes corrupted. And and again, that that was the culture of the Corinthian church. All sorts of sexual sin. I read a, a a quote about it. I mean, to be called a Corinthian was a disparagement, and it basically meant licentious, uh, immoral living is what it referred to. And so Paul in this culture says, no. Um, in fact, I'd, I'd even uh, read uh, of one prominent evangelical a couple years ago uh, who, who wrote a letter, and he said, Faithful people may disagree what the Bible says about homosexuality, but we agree that God's holy word must never be used as a weapon to wound others. Well, first off, the Bible says it's a weapon. It says it's a sharper than any two-edged sword. Um, but then he also said LGBTQ individuals are beloved children of God because they are made in the image and likeness of God. And they are in the image and likeness of God, no doubt, but none of us are children of God until we repent and are adopted into salvation. Um, and so we can't have unity on that message. But here's where the church is struggling, going, well, how do, how do we convey this? Uh, anybody can be a child of God. We are all in His image, but we're not children until we're adopted. Whatever our sin is, uh, that's the message of the cross, and that's what Paul's going to get to, is, um, is we bring our lives in line with the gospel, and then, by God's grace, we become children of God uh, by His work. Um, but, but again, that was not necessarily the issue here. The issue here was, as, as Paul says, he says there's, uh, there's these divisions. Somebody says, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter. Um, what is he not saying? He's not saying that you, that you don't have your, your own teachers that you might like, that you don't have a preference where you say, man, this guy just, I just really, you know, his teaching just ministers to me or whatever. That wasn't the issue. The issue was they were dividing over it because that, that could be like, hey, you know, that guy's preaching the gospel. God bless him. I just, it's not, it doesn't resonate with me as much. Um, but, you know, I support his work. Paul says even people that are preaching for pretense, for bad motives, he says, I just rejoice the gospel is being preached. But the problem here is they were dividing and they were quarreling. That's what it says in verse 11. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. What is a quarrel? It's a disagreement. James tells us the source of quarrels. Um, he says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. So, this, so the source of quarrels is basically a self-exaltation, if you will. It's the opposite of humility. And whether that's being joined to the world or from some pleasure, whether that's, again, just pride and take, take pleasure in, in thinking that I'm smarter than everybody else. Um, 
that's the source, and so that's the problem. It wasn't that I said, hey, man, I really get, like this teacher. It was that they were dividing up, like, I'm better than you, uh, I'm, I'm holier than you, or, uh, or what have you. And another point uh, that, I, that I wanted to make, again, he's listing sort of some of the who's who, right? He's Paul, Peter, Apollos, uh, Christ, um, as, as those that are look, people are looking to to be divided. Um, it just reminded me that as he, as he lists out these people, that just because I say something or just because I quote from somebody or somebody else puts a quote from somebody up there, those people are not perfect. Um, and we still need to have sound judgment in reviewing anybody we listen to. You know, the Bible cautions us to be as Bereans and to search out the Scriptures. And so there may be a guy that you've heard a hundred times, and man, it just, again, resonates with me, but you still need to search the Scriptures and, um, because he's not perfect, and we need to use biblical judgment. So that, again, is an aside. Um, so Paul, again, in addressing these things, he says it's clear that God saves through the gospel. Back to verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should be made void. Um, and so what is the gospel? You know, we, we talk about the gospel a lot. Um, we, we've heard John 3.16, For God so loved the world, which is, you know, a, a central part of discussing the gospel, but Paul tells us what he said the gospel was to the Corinthian church when he went there. This is in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, beginning in verse 1. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which also you were saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance, again, primary, preeminent, what I also received. We didn't, we didn't earn it. We didn't work for it. You received it. I received it. It was a gift that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day and according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. And he goes on and says he appeared to a lot of other people. But the, the fundamental aspect of the gospel, again, is... Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, um, that he died for our sins, and that he was raised. He was the first fruits in many respects. And why the cross? Well, picking it back up in verse 18, he tells us, For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. Here's that word foolishness again. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Um, Again, maybe it's become familiar. Maybe we don't think about it as much, but that's the power of God for salvation. It's the message of the cross. It's the gospel. Um, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. Only the Holy Spirit uh, can, can open our understanding, and we're going to see that later. Uh, but this is not the only time Paul has said this. Paul says in Romans 1, when he's writing the letter to the Romans, he says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So he preached to the Corinthians, he preached to the Romans. And then this famous verse, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation 
to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So, again, this is not one-off like, oh, yeah, Paul thought it was really important for the Corinthians, you know, so much so that he's sort of just embellishing and saying, well, this is the power for power of God for salvation. No, he, we'll see it throughout. We'll see it in other places uh, where he's saying, guys, you got to get it. This is important stuff. This is of first importance. This is preeminent. This is the power, this message. Uh, it's foolishness. It looks like foolishness. You know, wouldn't, wouldn't it be better to have power and display of some grandiose thing or something more tangible? Um, he says, no, this is, this is the power, uh, the gospel. And he's going to elaborate on that. So let's pick it up in verse 19, and we will continue. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the clever, cleverness of the clever. There's a little tongue twister. I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased. You almost see God just laughing almost. Through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs. Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block or an offense. And to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called... Whom God has chosen, both Jews and Greeks, God's no respecter of persons, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ, Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord." Let's pause there again. Um, again, Paul sets out to just destroy any idea that, that there's power and wisdom. Um, and, and again, that God is sort of just making a mockery of all human wisdom. Um, the Jews, they want a sign. They, you know, they, they, the, the Greeks, they want wisdom. Uh, they want to hear something you know, profound and whatever. And the message that, here's the message. Christ died. He was raised again. Uh, to pay for your sins and their salvation. It just, it's an offense uh, to many, to so many. And um, again, the cross is the power. Man's wisdom is foolishness, and our only boast is in the Lord. It, it brings us back to that so that no one can boast. It wasn't anything that we did. And of course, the hope that's in these verses, not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble that probably includes most all of us, um, that, that God is seeking to save the lowest and the outcast and the downcast and, and anybody. Um, it reminds me of the, the parable of the wedding feast that J Jesus told where 
the, the guy throws this wedding feast and he invites all the guests and all the, all the muckety-mucks are too busy. So he says, go out there and basically go in the streets and find anybody who will come. Now, they have to be clothed. They have to be um, redeemed. But uh, he, he chose the base things of the world uh, and chose those who are not to confound those that are. Chose the foolish things. Um, again, such hope in that for all of us. And as a result, this is how Paul came to them. With this understanding, you almost see Paul just, I, I mean, I could almost see Sosthenes trying to keep up with the transcription. Paul's just, you know, going, going, going right here. Um, and because of that, because he believes that so much, and the Holy Spirit inspired him, obviously, then this is how he approaches it. Chapter 2, verse 1. And when I came to you, brethren, so he comes with this message, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Again, he's proclaiming the testimony of God. Remember, he, he was on the road to Emmaus. He encountered Christ. Um, he, he says, I can, I can testify. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And the power of God, we already saw in verse 18 of chapter 1, is the gospel. That's where your faith has to rest. Not on Paul, even though he you know, was an, an amazing apostle, with great authority and great wisdom, he comes basically to base and says, I don't want you to trust in anything else except this fundamental truth. Um, interestingly, though, there are a lot of other passages where Paul does reason, and he does try to persuade. So uh, there's nothing wrong with reason. I mean, God gave us reason. There's nothing wrong with persuading. In fact, when you go to Acts 18 and verse 4, Again, the account of Paul uh, going to Corinth and originally uh, planning the church there. It says Paul was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So he, he was there. He was doing that. And that's a good thing. And Paul knows a lot. I mean, he's a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? Um, he might be considered noble, certainly well-educated. And yet he comes and it says, my message is Christ. I don't want you to rely on anything else. I want your faith to be real. And when Silas and Timothy come later to Corinth at the founding of the church there, um, Paul, it says Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And they rejected him, so then he goes to the Gentiles, uh, and he stays there for a year and a half teaching the Word of God. Uh, he, he just, again, pours the Word of, word of God into them. So he didn't come as a silver-tongued orator. He didn't come and flash his credentials. And again, maybe that would have been wisdom in Corinth. You know, they're used to, uh, used to seeing shows. They're, they're intellectually astute and so forth. Maybe they need to be dazzled by intellect and scholarship and credentials. And yet Paul, who's very grounded and founded in the Scriptures from his youth, he comes and says, I, I, want, the Spirit, I want the demonstration of the Spirit and the power of the Gospel. And, of course, the power is the message of the gospel. 
And I want your faith to rest upon that. And so even in this culture steeped in relativism and pluralism and wealthy and self-important and so forth, uh, that's still the message that's needed. John Piper said something similar in this way. He said, I have seen more clearly than ever how essential it is to exult explicitly in the excellence of Christ crucified for sinners and risen from the dead. Christ must be explicit in all our God talk. It will not do in this day of pluralism to talk about the glory of God in vague ways. God without Christ is no God, and a no God cannot save or satisfy the soul. Following a no God, whatever his name or whatever his religion, will be a wasted life. God in Christ is the only true God and the only path to joy. And again, it's not that Paul doesn't talk of other things, because he does. He's going to talk of other things in this letter in the Corinthians. It's just that the cross and Christ is central. So much so that he says this, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, what we already read. Um, even though he knows a lot of things. He, again, well-versed in the Scriptures, but he says this is so fundamental. This informs everything that I'm going to teach and talk about. And this is the way John Piper Explain that. The Apostle Paul said that his life and ministry were riveted on a single aim. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is astonishing when you think of all the varied things Paul did, in fact, talk about. There must be a sense in which Jesus Christ and Him crucified is the ground and sum of everything else he says. He is pushing us to see our lives with a single focus and for the cross of Christ to be that focus. You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. But that's one thing that you must know. And Paul, again, is trying to ground that deeply into the foundation of the church. And I'm going to skip that one because it just goes over some of the same stuff. Um, So much so, Paul's sort of notes his own inadequacy, because we also see that. So not only does he say, I was determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, um, but it says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And um, we don't know what that was. There's actually a debate among commentators a little bit. I think it kind of neither here nor there. Um, some would say uh, that it was physical infirmity. You know, we know that Paul says, I prayed three times that this thorn in my flesh, and so maybe it was a physical infirmity. Or maybe it was just the burden of the gospel, knowing what he was dealing with. But either way, if it's a physical infirmity, the weight of the gospel and the responsibility behind it is, is driving him to nevertheless do this through his limitations. And as we've talked about in 2 Corinthians, uh, God's strength is made perfect in weakness, or else he just feels it. Um, that he feels this awesome responsibility uh, and, and privilege of sharing the gospel, that it is this power that almost makes you tremble. Um, G. Campbell Morgan summarized it this way. He said, So great was his sense of weakness and fear, and so profound his lack of trust in himself, that he quaked, he trembled. Those are the secrets of strength in all preaching. And again, not what we're usually drawn to, right? Usually we want the dynamic, maybe flamboyant, maybe showy. Um, if, if you see somebody quaking uh, while they're preaching, might ought to listen. might be 
God's hand on them in a powerful way. Uh, and that's how Paul says he came. And again, whether that was throughout the whole thing or just this sense of, man, I just, I've got this precious thing and I just, how am I going to deliver it? Um, again, just the weight of it. Here's what David Guzik said. Preaching strategies centered on the wisdom of men around emotion, entertainment, and human personality may yield response. You could get a lot of people to come down and be moved, but not results for the kingdom of God. Many people use slick, entertaining, or even deceptive means to lure people into the church and justify it by saying, we're drawing them in and winning them to Jesus. But the principle stands, what you draw them with is what you draw them to. If someone can be persuaded into the kingdom by human wisdom, they can also be persuaded out of the kingdom by human wisdom. Again, it's, it's God's work, right? And, um, and that's why Paul, with all his learning, with all his experience and everything else, he says, man, I'm not coming with human wisdom because I want this to be real. And not only that, I want it to be a display of the Spirit's work. That's what he says, right? He says... Um, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God, there in verse 5. Um, and in verse 4, he says, uh, And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So we know the power was the gospel. What's the demonstration of the Spirit? Well, he's going to explain it to me and to us. I need it more, <laughs> more than anybody. Um, and some of these next verses are sort of confusing, but I'm going to read through them, and then I'm going to, I'm going to draw from that and, and sort of summarize. So picking up in verse 6, he says, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all those that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Verse 14, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And I'm going to pause there. So essentially he's saying this message, the message of the gospel, uh, was hidden. The, the rulers of the age, and we'll touch on that briefly, didn't, didn't know it, weren't aware of it. And yet the Spirit knows and the Spirit has revealed it. Right, And so then he comes down. So the work of the Spirit, if you will, so the, the power of Christ is the gospel, the power of God is the gospel, and the demonstration of the Spirit is largely there in verse 14. The natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. So you can, again, preach the message, and they don't understand it. 
Pastor Jim talked about this recently. You know, you may have read the Bible a bunch and you're going, man, this means nothing to me. And then all of a sudden, God opens your understanding. That's the work of the Spirit. Um, it was foolishness, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised, but then the Spirit opens our understanding. Paul says, yeah, this, this is what was revealed to us. You know, I mean, again, Paul persecuted the church, and then Jesus appeared and, and opened his understanding and revealed the truth to it. And that, I, I believe, is the work of the Spirit. So, one other little minor point. Oh, okay, so here you go. Chronicles of Narnia, I didn't mean to go to this one yet. But verse 8, where it talks about the rulers of this age, they didn't know. Again, there's a bit of a debate. Was that, um, was that the, the leaders, like the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders? Or was that the prince of the power of the air, Satan and his people? And I think the short answer is yes. I mean, nobody knew. Now, whether it's referring to this or not, it made me think of C.S. Lewis's allegorical portrayal of this. For those of you who are not familiar, um, Aslan is sort of an allegorical portrayal of Christ, if you've seen the movie or if you've read the book. And the stone table is sort of an allegorical portrayal of the cross. And so Aslan is killed, he's sacrificed, um, and yet... He's resurrected, the stone table breaks, and he's resurrected. And so here's the dialogue. Susan approaches him. There's the book. This is the bigger quote. But what does it all mean, asked Susan. He's alive. You know, they were, they're weeping because he's dead. It's like the, the ladies who are the first to the, to the tomb. Um, Susan asked when they were somewhat calmer. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there's a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked back a little bit further, a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawn, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. And now, Oh, yes, now, said Lucy, jumping and clapping her hands. Oh, children, said the lion, I feel my strength coming back to me. Oh, children, catch me if you can. So C.S. Lewis is sort of portraying this as that's Satan. Satan didn't know because if Satan had known, he wouldn't have killed her. The white witch is sort of the, the Satan figure, if you will. And, and I think that's true. Obviously, from the very beginning in Genesis, there's the promise of the Savior coming, and Satan has spent all of eternity trying to kill the line um, and, uh, and keep the Savior from coming. And then when the Savior comes, he kills him. But he's finite. His, his knowledge is finite. He's not infinite and eternal like God. And so he didn't know that what he was doing was actually a fulfillment of God's plan and Christ's willing sacrifice and our hope. So... That may mean nothing to any of you, but if you've seen the movie or, or uh, are familiar with it, I just thought it was interesting that C.S. Lewis's portrayal is, yeah, Satan didn't know, uh, or else he wouldn't have done this. And he's, again, the prince of the power of the air. So, a little aside, um, all of this, to summarize, I'm going to start bringing this to a close. The cross of Christ. It's not only the solution for divisions within the church, uh, whatever the source of those are, whether, uh, you know, dividing over, again, 
who my favorite person is or our little clique or our little group or what the color of the carpet is or whatever else uh, that seems more important than the cross of Christ. Um, the cross of Christ is the solution for that. But it's also the solution for everything. It, it is our everything. And Paul just, again, I, I feel like he's just saying, how, how, can I, how can I say this? Obviously inspired, but God using Paul's language, it's like he's stumbling over himself to say again and again, this is central. The wisdom of man is nothing. And is Paul right about this? Of course, I like the way J.C. Ryle said it. <clears throat> you may rest assured that Paul was right. Depend upon it. The cross of Christ, the death of Christ on the cross to make atonement for sinners is the center truth in the whole Bible. Paul gloried in nothing but the cross. Strive to be like him. Set Jesus crucified before the eyes of your soul. I believe it is an excellent thing for us all to be continually dwelling on the cross of Christ. I see in Christ's cross wisdom and power, peace and hope, joy and gladness, comfort and consolation. The more I keep the cross in my mind's eye, the more fullness I seem to discern in it. The longer I dwell on the cross in my thoughts, the more I am satisfied that there is more to be learned at the foot of the cross than anywhere else in the world. Is that our boast? Is that our focus? Again, may we strive to be like that. That was Paul's boast. Again, to summarize, we looked at several points where he, where he addressed this, but then he says in Galatians 6.14, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And again, is, is that where we are? Has the world been crucified to us? Have we been crucified to the world? Um, is, is that our boast? I think that's the challenge for us. And some of you may not know Christ. I don't know. I think mostly familiar faces here tonight. And you've not repented of your sins. And you've not turned to Christ for salvation. And maybe you've said, I'm too low. I'm too foolish. I'm too whatever. I'm not smart. I'm not wise. Well, from the Word of God tonight on the authority of Scripture, I can say that those are the people God chooses. Um, and maybe you've not even considered Christ before, but it's like a light bulb went off. Maybe it's, again, some of you or some of you watching. And it makes perfect sense now. And guess what? On the authority of God's Word, that's the Spirit of God at work in you, enlightening your understanding. Um, seek Him. Just as Aslan said, come after me uh, to Susan. Call upon Him and be saved. Or maybe you are smart and wise and you've got a lot to boast about and you're successful and all those things. you got it figured out. But you've come to hear this and you've said, man, I don't know about eternity, though. Um, what's going to happen when I die? I don't have any sort of security in that. Um, and you've heard this and you've said, oh, there's not many noble, though. M maybe this is my reward here. Well, God's opening your eyes, too. And you're realizing the significance of the cross. And the good news is God said there's not many noble. He didn't say there's not any noble. And so there's hope for you too. Again, God is no respecter of persons. Just as we read, uh, Paul said, he says, I'm compelled, Romans 1.15. I'm going to the Jews, going to the Greeks, I'm going to the barbarians, going to the rich and the poor. Uh, again, the cross uh, is the great leveler. Uh, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And salvation is impossible for all of us apart from Christ.
Um, so here we are, again, the message to the church uh, in Corinth would be much like the message to the church here in the good old U.S. of A., I think, um, very similar culture. The Holy Spirit there didn't see, say we need more scholars and intellectuals. That'd be great. He didn't say we need multinodal leadership or a, a coterie of friends or anything like that. Um, he said we needed the cross of Christ. But for those of us who know Christ, who have repented and believed, maybe we've sort of become dull to this, and maybe God is stirring it back up to say, keep that in center place, keep that in focus, may that drive everything that we do. And maybe we've been, become puffed up, and maybe there are divisions. We've become proud. Um, you know, we, we like to talk about, <clears throat> or at least the people I, the circle I run in, talk about the national debt, $31 trillion, and we were going to pay that off, Right? I mean, we're not, okay? I hate to break the news to you. But our sin debt was greater than that. Have we forgotten that we were wretched sinners? And take $31 trillion and multiply it by 8 billion people, and then that's probably getting close to infinity. Once we get to infinity, that's what the debt was. Um, and yet the unbelievable part is while we had that huge load of sin debt that we couldn't handle and and it keeps accumulating and of course you can go look at the national debt clock and man it's just it's rolling well i mean that's the way we were rolling up sin and while we were yet sinners he died for us and john 316 is good news because it says he gave but do we forget what he gave i mean god gave his son it pleased him to sacrifice him and jesus willingly sacrificed himself the cross again it would be like exulting in the death you know the the electric chair um it it, it was a a torturous execution means and that's what it was he gave his life it wasn't just that he sent a rescuer you know it'd be great if oh jesus he gave his son to come as a superhero no he gave his son to come and die Um, he was killed in our place for that great debt that we were accumulating. So we've sung it a number of times. Uh, sometimes it makes me tremble. That's the way Paul approached this when he came and preached. Do we, do we tremble? Maybe not physically, but do we have that sense of awe? Like, wow, I, I need a renewed sense of awe. Or do we tremble with joy? Sort of like Susan and Lucy when they're excited at the resurrection. When we see the resurrection, we should be the most joyful people on earth. I mean, I had this enormous debt that I could not pay, and he died and rose again. Um, so heading into this season, and again, that's good news. That's, that's what gospel means is good news. That should be a source of joy for us. But heading into this Easter season, I just pray that God would renew that focus on the cross and the resurrection, what it means for us, um, and that that would be our, our message to a lost and dying world as we live our lives Um, and that we pray, that it motivates us to pray, not only to share the gospel, to be about the gospel, but to pray because it's the Spirit's work. The natural man doesn't receive this, and I'm sure you've had that. You know, we we pray for certain family members over and over again, and they've heard the gospel, Um, and sometimes it takes a while, and then the seed germinates, Um, but we need to pray for those things. We need the Spirit to open uh, and, and do His work as only He can do. In short, 
Can we say with Paul that our only boast is in the Lord Jesus Christ, him crucified and resurrected, um, and that by this the world has been crucified to me and I to the world? That is my prayer for us. I pray that we're growing in that, and I'm going to close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you so much for what you have done. We thank you for your goodness. Lord, grow us in it. May your spirit work. And Lord, again, I just pray for uh, our pastor and those traveling back. Be with them. Continue to bless them. We pray for a safe travel for them. uh, And just that uh, we would be encouraged when we join back together. And Lord, as we go tonight, just go with us. Uh, We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name.